Well, good morning. We're taking a break from our Ephesians series. We're going to be in Isaiah for about the next six or seven weeks in a new Advent series called Jesus Restores. We're just going to take a moment as a congregation. We have an incredible opportunity in 2021 to put our hope in Jesus Christ, to put our hope in the Christ who has come and who is coming again. During Thanksgiving, I I had some time off. It was really nice to have that time off with family and to reflect. And and I just want you to know how thankful I am for each and every one of you. I'm thankful for you as this church. I was talking to a friend of mine in Australia who's a pastor, and he was asking me how our church is doing, and he couldn't believe that we're still worshiping outside after 20 months. It's only two more weeks. We're going to be in in two weeks on the 12th. Everything's still looking good, no setbacks. We had a really good week, actually, this week on a short week of construction. But I'm so grateful for you. I'm just getting to know some of you, and I've known some of you a long time. I'm grateful to be your pastor, and I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to call you to put your hope in Jesus this morning and throughout this series. I do it every week, but particularly during Advent, we have an opportunity to put our hope in Jesus Christ. My question for you this morning is, what are you thirsting for? What are you really thirsty for this morning? And as I predict what your answers might be, I see two different various avenues that you can go down. One, as I think you're thirsty personally to have your soul, your personal individual soul, satisfied. And then the second thing I think that you're thirsty for, and that we're all thirsty for, it's not just really about ourselves. We really do want to be satisfied and need to be satisfied personally. But we also are deeply desiring to see the restoration of our world. We deeply want to see it. And in order for our hearts and for this world to be restored, we have to ask ourselves the question, how can that happen? First of all, personally, how can we be restored? One of my favorite singer-songwriters is David Wilcox. I don't know if he's even writing anymore, but when I was growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, he was uh, writing music, beautiful music. And one of his songs says, There's a break in the cup that holds love inside us all. There's a break in the cup that holds love inside us all. We are desperately seeking, as we get into Isaiah 55, what you find is you you find an individual and you have a community going to the marketplace and they're desperately looking for what will satisfy their souls. And yet what they find every time is that outside of Jesus, outside of redemption that's only offered through Christ, Everything falls through. Everything runs onto the ground. We have a break in the cup. Unless that break is healed, we will not be healed. But we give ourselves a little bit too much credit. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, wrote this about Isaiah 55, 1 through 2. He says this, God would have the attention of sinners, and so he calls for it. Aren't sinners eager for God? No, their ears are full of the world's commotion. It is God who is eager for sinners. So you have this image of God calling out in the marketplace, calling out, please come. We'll get into it. Please come to me. And we are, we're, our ears are full of the world's commotion. What are we full of? What are we thinking about? Man, we're looking for all kinds of ways to be satisfied. Some of those ways to be satisfied are good things that God has made. Relationships, food, drink, sex, these are good things that God has made, but we, we make them ultimate things, and they become a bad thing, and they ruin us. They become our master. We become enslaved to them. Some of those things that we pursue are, are just not good things at all. 
Uh, we, 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 get cor- we go corrupted. We, we pursue pornography. We pursue um, endless dopamine hits on social media that ends up driving us crazy and lonely. And yet God is there. Jesus is calling out in the marketplace, come to me. I want to satisfy your soul. So we need that personal restoration individually, but it's more than that. We want more than that. I know you. I know that you don't just want satisfaction for yourself. You actually look at the world, and you look at what's happening in the world around you, and it breaks you. And for you to be satisfied, it's going to be more than just you feeling happy about your own state of affairs. If, if everything doesn't change, if the world isn't renewed, then, well, we're part of the world, and we don't have the hope that we're longing for. I'm going to briefly survey, because I think it's important, this idea of cultural hope. You know, what we, what we, what we grow up on in America is that we need to have every successive generation is going to be better than the one before. We grow up believing that. We see statistics on it. How, are we making more money? Are our kids going to be more successful? And we, we nurse this idea of cultural hope. For the last hundred years before even uh, before even really we thought about this in, in our lifetime, 100 years ago in the Great War, it was the worst war that had ever happened to that time, the most loss of life. But yet even after the Great War, in the face of all of that going on, there was a writer named H.G. Wells. He's also British. He captured the spirit of the age after the war in a book he published called A Short History of the World in 1922. Listen to what well said about the optimism of cultural hope. He says, science has brought humanity such powers that he never had before. And the scientific method of fearless thought, exhaustively lucid statement, exhaustively criticized planning, which has given man these uncontrollable powers, will also give man the hope of controlling those powers. And yet we are hardly in the dawn of human greatness. Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, that the strength that the children of our blood and lives will live in a world more splendid and lovely, going from strength to strength in an ever-widening world of achievement. This is 1922. No one harnessed the spirit of, of wanting to, to work hard to plan, critical thinking, knowledge, rigorous application of so-called science than the Nazis. But they did not take into account their human depravity and Nazism being so motivated to take the world to what they consider to be a better place did not move us from strength to strength, but became an ever-widening world of racism, arrogance, and genocide. And so post-World War II, we begin, to, everybody begins to deconstruct the world. In the 60s, those who are in power, everyone who's in power, those who are not in power, those in power begin to get deconstructed, and rightfully so. We look at those in power and the way they use their power, and we look at that and we're like, that's not right. But then those who are criticizing those in power, the movements they want to produce, they also cannot accomplish what they want. And so we have this question of cultural Hope. We are so very thirsty to see things changed in the world. We're trying everything as human beings, even today, 
either from the standpoint of so-called conservatism or progressivism to make the world a better place. No matter what your political view is, you want to make the world a better place, not just for yourself, but for other people. We're trying to end nuclear war and terror, end famines and food shortages, end climate catastrophe, end plagues and pandemics, end the discord exacerbated by the media, end loneliness reinforced by social media. We see all of the problems that are out there. My question to you is, with all of our efforts, and I believe we should be putting them toward those efforts, toward renewing our culture, what is becoming of our culture? What is becoming of our culture? What is becoming of American culture? What is becoming of culture in the West? Not just American culture. I'm in a group of uh, pastors who work with the Chinese church. In the Chinese church, what is becoming of Chinese culture? What is becoming of culture in the world? Are we putting our hope in the every generation getting better in our own culture? Is that, are, we, are we putting our hope in our culture? And we have to ask ourselves the question, if America, let's say, so um, Bush and then Obama and then Trump, everybody's been using these terminologies, are we on the right or the wrong side of history? It's constant. Every, every president uses the same rhetoric, right or the wrong side of history. Well, what if right now, I'm not saying that we are, I'm just trying to get you to think outside the box a little bit. What if America right now is past its zenith? What if it is? What if, what if the future of America is not as good as its past? I personally hope that's not the case. But what if it's not? Is your hope in America going from strength to strength? Is your hope for the West continuing to conquer all of our problems? Because if we look at the track record of our lives, that's really not the last hundred years. We are, not, we are not achieving great things as human beings as a society. Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. The reason why I'm bringing all this up to you is because for the people who originally received this letter, they were receiving this letter in the exile. They, had, they, were, they were national Israel. They had been powerful before, but their greatest days were behind them. The question for them is, are they putting, is God calling them to put their hope in Israel nationally being restored to this great place? Or are they being called to put their hope, not in cultural hope, but in a hope for a new king and a new kingdom that will be ushered into the world. I think there is great hope for this world, but the hope of this world is not in cultural hope. The great hope of this world is not in our society just getting it together and figuring out how to solve all these problems. We will not figure all of that out. We are longing, we are thirsty. What are we thirsty for? We're thirsty for personal transformation and we're thirsty for cultural transformation and those things can only, both of them can only come through Jesus Christ. And so what's being said here in Isaiah 55 is both. That you're longing for two things. You have two big questions. How can I be satisfied and how can the world be restored? And Jesus restores both of them in Isaiah 55. And we're going to get into that. There are three calls of Jesus where he calls us to himself and he promises to satisfy us with both in this beautiful passage. He says, first of all, come to satisfaction. And second of all, he says, come to repentance. And third, he says, come to a new creation. First of all, come to satisfaction, verses 1 through 5. The context, again, is they're in the marketplace. There's all of these sellers. They're out. They're, they're, they're constantly calling out. The commotion is massive. And Jesus, amongst all of those, all of that commotion, all of those sellers, 
is calling out and saying, come to me, all you who are thirsty. So first of all, the call is for everyone to come. The call is for everyone. And then Jesus says, come you who are thirsty. So the call is for everyone, but then there's also a personal call that you would come and receive these waters of grace. Waters means that it's adequate provision for you. That these waters will satisfy your soul. He says, come you who have no money, come buy and eat. Jesus knows that you have nothing that you can give him. So in this marketplace, you don't have the money, you don't have the commodities that you need to be able to get what you need, but it's given to you for free. He says you can buy wine and milk without money and without cost. This is provision that God promises for us and for the world that is not at bare minimum, but is is his grace that is going to really satisfy and lavishly satisfy our souls. Have you ever received a gift from someone that was so beyond what you expected? Like it just it was completely out of nowhere, kind of blew you away and, and was just was so generous. Olivia and I, when uh, we first got married, it was actually our second anniversary. We were really poor, had nothing. We were in Birmingham. We were raising support to be missionaries to go back to China. And we had been given a night to stay down at this old historic hotel in downtown Birmingham called the Tutwiler. And while we were down there, we were walking around downtown, and a friend of mine, a little bit older than me, drove by. He was an attorney in town. He's like, hey, Corey, I didn't know you were in town. That's cool. And a guy named Mike Mulvaney. And uh, we talked for a second, and we thought that was nice. And we went back to the hotel room, and we had, it was back in the day when, I don't even know if they do this anymore in hotels, but there was actually a blinking light, and I had to call and get the message. And... um, and actually, the person at the front desk said, someone has gifted you a dinner at Cafe DuPont tonight. It's, it's one of the nicest uh, restaurants in Birmingham. And uh, you're supposed to show up at this time, and the bill's taken care of. And so we, I mean, we had nothing. We had nothing. And so we showed up, and we were planning on going to, you know, whatever, you know, some restaurant in town. And we showed up, and the waiter reiterated over and over again, Mr. Mulvaney has paid for everything, and he wants you to order whatever you want. He does not want you to, not, to, to go cheap on him. He wants you to order food and drink and dessert and everything. And it was a, like a $200 plus meal. Now, the reason why that meant so much, it was a very kind gesture, but one of the reasons why that meant so much to me and Olivia is because we didn't have anything. We literally had, we were so, at that, we, were, we have never been poorer than we were at that point in our, in our marriage. And so it's, the, it's the, the fact that we didn't have much that made the gift so beautiful and so thoughtful and so generous. Now, c- contrast it. I mean, we're not, like, killing it right now. But if somebody gave me a $200 dinner, I'd be really, really grateful, and that'd be, that'd be cool and unexpected. But it was different then because I didn't have anything. And so that's the deal for us. When you're in the marketplace, how poor are you in that marketplace spiritually? How much do you need, do you need God? How much do you need his grace? Are you poor, but you're able to help yourself? Do you, do you have essentially enough on your own and Jesus is kind of a little extra? Or are you really, truly poor and you can't help yourself? In the Sermon on the Mount, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor, are, the poor in spirit are those who know that without grace, they are desperate. They have nothing. 
And that's where we come in in the, in the commotion, the world of ideas. I know you're desperate. You're like me. You're desperate for grace. And we fill our hearts with other things when only one thing is needed, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus, how does he really offer us his grace? Well, in Isaiah 53, he's the suffering servant. And so our sin is really the burden, the great burden of our souls. And Christ pays for sin on the cross. And so to go back to the analogy, the bill was paid by Mike Mulvaney. The bill was paid by him, so it was free for us. But that meal wasn't free. That meal cost a lot of money. Similarly, grace is free for you, but that bill wasn't free. Jesus Christ paid the bill with his blood. He made that, this meal of grace available to you so that you can enjoy it if you will put your faith and trust in him. So what needs to happen in order to enjoy the meal? Well, first of all, in verse 2, it says you need to listen. And amongst all the voices, you have to listen. You have to tune out the voices of the crowd and listen to the voice of the one. There is a responsibility of the hearer. You have to listen. If you don't listen to grace, then you will listen to the world's commotion. You have to listen. How do you listen? Well, you can listen to preaching. You can listen to the word. You can read the word. You can listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. You can live in community and listen to brothers and sisters. You can listen to pastoral prayers. You can listen to confessions of sin. You can listen to the lyrics of songs. You can listen, but your heart has to listen. Your heart has to listen to these words. Grace is what you need personally. It comes to you through Jesus Christ. And after you hear and listen to the word of Jesus, it says you need to drink him in. You need to eat what is good and your souls will delight in the richest of fare. So there has to be a relationship between the listening and the obedience. When you listen, you have to put it into action. You need to, to trust in those words. And when you can't trust and you're having a hard time, you can say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But it needs to transition from listening, the ears to the heart, to the hands. We need to drink him in. If we drink him in, how satisfied will we be in the end? In verse 3, we have an, a reference to David. Okay, And so he says, I will make an everlasting covenant to you, my faithful love promised to David. So the God is saying, he's invoking the name of David, saying, not that you will return to a David-like kingdom, but those promises that I made to David, that I will be faithful and I will fulfill my covenant to David, those same promises are for you. And you're not looking to a past kingdom, you're looking to a future kingdom. You're looking to a kingdom that will have no end. You're looking to a kingdom where grace reigns because there's a new king who reigns for you, and he will give you the satisfaction. He promises you, God promises you that if you'll turn to Christ, then he will satisfy your soul. He will satisfy your soul with his covenant love. This is amazing grace. Listen, God is pledging his total faithfulness to those who are thirsty and looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places, who are committed to wrong things in their hearts, who do not deserve the grace that comes through the death and resurrection of the Son. But he's saying, because Jesus came for you, I am going to pursue you in the marketplace of ideas, the marketplace of affections, no matter where you're going, what you're doing, I'm pursuing you and I'm calling out and you need to listen to me and receive my grace. But there's even more. Remember, the, the great question isn't just how can I be happy, it's how can the world be renewed. Look at verse 5. It says, Behold, you shall call a nation you do not know 
and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God Israel, for he has glorified you. This is so true that when your heart is restored in the gospel, it's never just about you. It's never just about you. It is always God including you in, in what he is doing and including you in his plan to redeem the whole world, which is part of how you've been hardwired to care about the renewal of, 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 of all things. That's what, that's what God wants. And so God is saying to Israel, yes, my plan is for you to restore you, my people. My plan is greater than that. My plan is to restore the entire world, and you're going to get to be a part of that restoration. And so for Israel, for us, when you're restored, what you're going to get to be a part of is more than just the restoration of your own story, but it's the restoration of the nations for God's glory. But importantly, going back to this idea of Western or American cultural hope, listen to what Hervin Bavink says. He says, The New Testament nowhere, nowhere suggests that the church of Christ will ever achieve earthly power and dominion such as that of Old Testament Israel. Indeed, like its master, the pilgrim church can't expect a cross of persecution and suffering. So our vision is not for cultural hope, that, that our, our culture or another culture will somehow be able to typify what Jesus Christ is doing. Our vision is that Jesus is king, and Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom. His kingdom is breaking into this world and bringing renewal to our culture, but his kingdom is a different kingdom. It's a different culture. It's a culture where grace reigns through death and resurrection. And so Jesus says, come to me. He invites us to come to satisfaction for you and for the world. That's the first part. The second invitation in Isaiah 55 is come to repentance. Come to repentance. So how do we take hold of this good food and drink? How do we transition from ears to heart to hands? How does that actually happen? Well, it happens in what's called in this section, verses 5, 6, and 7, is called, excuse me, 6 and 7 is called the pivot of the chapter. Now, pivoting is a word that we use in basketball. I love basketball. Pivoting is, is a move that you make where the only way you can pivot is you have to put all of the weight of your, your body on one foot and you shift. You have to put all of the weight on one foot. And what he's saying here in this section is you need to put all of the pivoting weight of your life onto Jesus Christ. You can't hedge your bets. You can't hold one foot here and, one, and you know, maybe a little bit of pressure on this side. You need to absolutely put all of your weight in pivoting repentance on Jesus Christ. And so how do we do this? Well, there are three ways, three parts of repenting here. The first is you need to seek. You need to seek in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Again, to repent, it means that you have to directionally seek. You have to move. When you pivot, you move in the direction usually of the basket. That's where you want to score. You have to move in the direction of Jesus. And again, there is a responsibility on the person receiving the word. You need to seek the Lord while he may be found and pay attention to him. There's an idea here that the grace of God won't be available forever. That there's going to be a time when God takes his stand down from the marketplace and no longer offers grace to sinners. And so we need to take advantage of this moment. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to do that. If this is the time for repentance, it says in 2 Peter, when, when the world is, is waiting on the gospel, or maybe they're not waiting, but they need to hear it. 
and we need to share it with them. So we need to seek the Lord while he may be found. And there's an urgency to this. Verse 7, the, the second part of, of pivoting toward Christ is forsaking. It's forsaking the ways that lead us to sin. Forsaking ways that lead us away from soul-satisfying grace. So we cannot hold on to sin and grace at the same time. We need to, to let go of sin. We need to repent of sin and move toward Jesus Christ. One unknown British theologian, quoting a lot of British guys today, um, said that repentance means we come to the Lord as we are, but we do not stay as we are. We come to the Lord as we are, but we don't stay as we are. There's always directional movement when you're with Jesus, one way or the other. If you're following Jesus, there's directional movement. Yes, you receive grace from God, but you also are called to his cold, clean, soul-satisfying water that leads you to a new life. And then third, the third aspect of repentance is you need to turn. You need to turn. And when you turn, when you turn away from sin, if sin is the opposite of, of grace, whenever you do that, that pivot, the word for repentance in the Greek is metanoia. It means to turn. You turn from sin and you turn to Christ. So Christ and his grace are the opposite of sin. You turn, and when you turn to him, it says what happens? God has mercy on us because he freely pardons us. He freely pardons us. Again, that free pardon comes at a great expense, the cost of his life. But I would submit to you that our first response to sin often is not repentance or turning from sin. Our first response when we see sin in our lives is normally to try to, to do better or to make up for the things that we've done wrong in our lives. During one of the Avengers movies, I was struck by the explanation of why Black Widow, played by Scarlett Johansson, became an Avenger. She said she had red in her ledger. If you remember that, red in her ledger. Because of the shameful things she had done. And so her motive for doing good was somehow to make up for the bad things that she'd done in her sinful ledger. And this is a very typical response. I mean, outside of hearing of God's grace, free grace to cleanse you from your sin, what are you going to do? Well, you can either say sin doesn't really exist, I'm just going to, you know, whatever, carpe diem. Or you can say sin exists, it's bothering me that I've done all these things, I'm going to try to make up for it. There's really only a couple of responses you can have. And if you feel like in, you had read in your ledger and you've never been able to absolve that your conscience from that, like Scarlett Johansson, you, you, you might spend your life just trying to make up for it. So at the end of your life, column A is higher than column B, and maybe God will forgive you. But I'm telling you that there's another way. The way is the way of Jesus Christ because he says, if you will merely turn to him, if you will hear his voice, if you'll seek him and turn away from your sin, put your pivot on the grace of God and turn towards him, he will freely pardon you and he will set up a table for you at a wonderful cafe of his grace that will actually satisfy your soul. You know, the latest uh, Black Widow movie, it just shows that, I mean, she's, you know, the character in the movie, she's still not satisfied. She's still not satisfied. She's still looking for ways to make up for all the brokenness of her past. That path of making up for the red in your ledger is exhausting. It is never-ending, but the grace of Jesus Christ can give you rest and will give you rest. We serve a God full of pardoning grace. So he says, come to satisfaction. Then he says, come to repentance. 
So we have these two questions. How can I be satisfied and how can the world be renewed? This final invitation of Jesus Christ, come to a new creation, really speaks to this restoration that our hearts desperately are searching for. There's so many broken things in our world. We're more aware than ever, and we're more motivated than ever as human beings, and I think as a church, to do something about those broken things in our world. Creation is thirsty for wholeness, but will it ever be satisfied? Will the hope of humanity ever come to fruition? With the track record we have as human beings in the last hundred years, the last ever how many thousand years, can we deliver? Can we produce a society that can deliver and push back the evils of this world? On our own, I would submit to you, no, we cannot. No, we cannot. We cannot produce a culture that will right all the wrongs of this world. If you're putting your hope in culture to perfect itself, I would encourage you to put your hope somewhere else. I would encourage you to put your hope in Jesus Christ, who does redeem and set up a new kingdom that does renew and impact culture, but it's a totally different kingdom. It's a different kingdom with different principles and a different king himself. And that's what we learn about here in these final verses. First of all, we learn about new creation life. We learn three things. New creation life comes by sovereign grace. God says, these are famous verses, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, O Lord. What does that mean? Well, if we thought, what is God thinking about when he's looking down at Israel? What's Israel thinking about what God's thinking about them? What are we thinking about what God's thinking about us when we have red in our ledger? And we have this history of just messing things up constantly. What's God thinking? He's saying, my my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. What are his ways? What are his thoughts? Well, very surprisingly, his ways and his thoughts are grace. His ways and his thoughts are, I love you, and I'm committed to you. I'm committed to my covenant love for you that I promised to David, and I'm going to come, I'm going to bring it to you through a new king. He's going to restore the world. Now, we would have never expected that, ever. Never. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. What are your thoughts, God? My, my thoughts are grace. My thoughts are renewal. My thoughts are restoration for you and for all of creation. God says, I'm sovereign, and in my sovereignty, I'm going to give grace out to the world. It doesn't start with you. Salvation starts with me. And this transcendent God loves us and loves the whole world. And so new creation life, first of all, comes by sovereign grace. And then in verse 10 and 11, it says it comes with effective grace. How powerful is this new life that we've been given? Again, verses 10 and 11 are well-known, powerful statements on the sovereignty of God and salvation. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Who is the rain? Who is the snow? Who is the word? It is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. He's the word of God. God says, I'm going to send the rain. I'm going to send the snow. I'm going to send the word. And when the word comes and it saturates the earth, He will accomplish all which I have sent him to do, which is to bring salvation into the world. So it's not just sovereign grace, it's effective grace. Jesus is is coming into the world, 
God is sending him into the world. It's not what we would have ever expected. And when Jesus comes, he's going to produce a harvest of grace and righteousness for the world. His word does not return void. And that means for us, Philippians 1.6 is a verse that I, I love. Whenever you're discouraged, and I know you are from time to time, and I am too, you can remember that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it into the day of Christ Jesus. That his grace is not just a sovereign grace, but it's an effective grace. That he is at work in you to produce new creation life. And then finally, new creation life means world-transforming grace. World-transforming grace. Uh, Alec Motier is a, is a scholar in verses 12 and 13. He says that these verses show us a picture of a transformed people in a transformed world who are, are an everlasting sign of who the Lord is. A transformed people in a transformed world who are an everlasting sign of who the Lord is. A transformed people. Here we are in COVID-19. Here we are in the midst of this, this difficult moment in, in our world. And we have an opportunity, if we listen to Jesus, to be people who are transformed by his joy. If we locate our hope in America, if we locate our hope in, in squelching out COVID, if we locate our hope in whatever that thing is that you're looking for, then you're not going to be able to have a lot of joy. Your joy is going to fluctuate up and down with the media cycle and whatever the CDC is saying and whatever. But if your joy is anchored in Jesus Christ, then you can have joy in any circumstance. We, we can be a people, and we are called to be a people who can be transformed by joy, who can live with a living hope in Jesus no matter what we are facing. Because we're people of joy, we've been satisfied by Jesus. Our sin has been paid for at the cross. We now have resurrection life in us, and we can experience what it means to be a transformed people. We're also in a, we're moving toward a transformed world, and we're living in a world that is being renewed even now by the gospel. In verse 12, it says, The mountains and the hills burst into song, and the trees of the field clap their hands. The idea here is that one day there will be a final Advent. You know, in heaven we'll no longer celebrate Advent. Advent will be over. There'll be a final day of Advent when Jesus will return, and on that day he will make all things new. You know, Jesus cares about not just you, he does care about you, but he cares about the whole world. And he's going to come and he's going to restore all things, he's going to make all things new. And this picture here is of creation. You know, we don't serve a God who tries to escape creation. We serve a God who came into creation, who even now is a human being, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, and will come, he is going to renew and redeem all things. Jesus Christ is intensely interested in this world. He's intensely interested in undoing the suffering of this world. He's intensely interested in undoing and totally, completely ending that curse forever, as far as the curse is found, that Genesis 3 will be no more remembered. It'll be gone. And we will see brokenness turn into beauty. In the final sentence of this text, it tells us why God will do all this. In verse 13, and it shall, be, it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will never be cut off. Why is God going to do this? Well, he's going to do this for himself. He's going to do it for himself. 
God wants the world to know that he alone is the satisfier of the human heart. God wants to know that he alone can renew the world. He alone is the Lord. He alone, through his crucifixion and resurrection, is bringing salvation to the world, and he will restore all things. And God is doing this for himself. Brothers and sisters, Christ gives us a reason to hope for ourselves and for a new world. But that hope is not anchored in America or in the West. It's not anchored in the East. It's not anchored in in any kind of social or political movement. That hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. And, And no matter what your political party, no matter what you're passionate about, you need to make sure that you get the, the, the first thing first, and that is you need to be serving Jesus Christ. If you're searching for joy, if you're searching for personal satisfaction, and you're mainly searching for it in other things, you're never going to find it. If you're searching for the renewal of the world and you're searching for it outside of Jesus Christ, you're never going to find it. You're going to be hopelessly frustrated. But if you seek Jesus Christ and seek his kingdom first and his righteousness, then he promises that everything will be added to you as well. And that goes for your own soul, and that goes for the hope of the world as well. I'll close by going back to verse 6. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Jesus is calling out to you, going back to verse 1, he's calling out to you in the marketplace of ideas, the marketplace of passions, the world of social media, he's calling out to you and he's saying that I have what you need. I have what you need. I have what you need and I have what the world needs. Will you tune out the voices of the crowd and listen to the voice of the one? Will you receive this grace that will satisfy your soul? Will you receive this king who is bringing in a kingdom that cannot be shaken? where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal, where malls don't have shootings, where people aren't assaulted in neighborhoods. We've been, this is kind of a crazy time. There's a lot going on in our culture right now where you don't have Delta variants. One day Jesus will wipe all of these things away. We have to put our hope in him in the middle of what is going on in our lives. I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to see that only Jesus restores. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, Father, that in the world that we live in, we can have our ears so full of the world's commotion. We can be so easily taken in by the latest passion, the latest uh, movement but Lord, I pray that you would be our God and we would be your people, that you would satisfy our souls with your grace. And as we're satisfied in grace, I pray that we would, um, we would follow you as you are busy about the work of restoring all things. Father, I thank you that we can put our hope in you. Lord, I thank you that you didn't leave us alone, that your thoughts about us are thoughts of grace, thoughts of mercy, thoughts of love thoughts of restoration. Help us to believe it, Lord. Help us to take it in and put the pivoting weight of our souls on Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name.